0: You're listening to Revenue Vitals with Chris Walker.
1: I'm going to just kind of talk through a framework. I might actually, I don't know if we're set up, but I would like to do a screen share if it's possible. I think I should be able to from my own screen. So if we can, I'll try a couple of things just to show people some tips. I want people to be able to take away a couple of things straight after this. And so we'll do that and we'll see where we end up. If we have time, we'll take some questions at the end. So let's get into it. The first thing is just like an introduction. And I the whole spark of this uh, this talk came as I just had an idea in my head and I wrote it down in the notes app and then I felt passionate enough to really talk through it. And so let's do it. The thing about paid social is that it's, or just social in general, is that it's completely different than search. And a lot of search marketers have never been able to make the jump to social because of how much different it is. Even though that buyers have moved from looking at things mainly in search because they didn't have access to their peers in 2014. So they would look at blogs to eight years later, they have access to all these peers. And instead of searching what is the best way to solve this? They go and ask their peers inside of a community or social network instead of searching for it. So there's a shift that has been happening, but people still have the same mindset of search, which is an intent-based marketing channel. Then they bring that to social, which is an awareness channel with no intent. I don't care if you're retargeting. I don't care if they've been to your website. They did not log in to LinkedIn to request a demo for your product. They didn't do that. And so the difference is is the intent that somebody has when they enter that specific platform. On Google, there's clear intent that gets demonstrated based on the search query about what they want. And on social, there's not. And so what B2B marketers haven't figured out that I'm trying to share with you is that when you're inside of paid social, buying the ads is easy. What B2B marketers haven't figured out yet is how to tell a business story That drives business outcomes that gets distributed using ads. That's the big shift. And so I'm going to talk through a little bit more in that, but it's easy to target. You can get to exactly who you want. CFOs at companies that are 200 to 1,000 employees, got them. Every single C-level executive at all of your named 200 top strategic accounts, easy to get to them. Every single account that's been to your website that fits your enterprise ICP, super easy to get to the targeting is very easy. What people need to really get to take a leap with here is that the story is whether or not you you win or lose. Most B2B companies don't even focus on the story because they're still in lead gen mode. I'm going to cover that. But the story determines whether or not you're successful. And B2B companies don't invest at all in the story. Don't think about it just by the ads, because they think about it like it's Google, where there was no story. Where all you had to do was buy the ad and get someone to go to your landing page, which is very different than where we're at now. So let's get into it. I'm going to walk through a framework. This is a common framework that I use, but in order to get from where you are to where you want to be inside of paid social, you got to change your mindset. You got to change your metrics. You got to change your execution in that order, in order to get better results. You can't change the execution until you change the mindset. And you can't change the execution until you change the metrics because inside of your company, it's going to look like it's not working, even though it could be. And so from a mindset standpoint, we need to move from running ads that are designed to collect email addresses to telling a story that moves people forward in a buying cycle. And the way that I figured this out in 2016, I'd encourage any B2B marketer that's involved in their company is running LinkedIn lead gen ads for gated content or anything else like that, where the design is that once they do that, they either get called immediately by some type of outreach by an SDR sales team, or they go through some type of process to hit an MQL score and then get outreach to the sales team. Either way, whenever that trigger happens that the sales team would reach out, I would encourage you to call the leads. Because that's what I did in 2016 when I was running gated content. And I was like, there's no fucking way I'm sending these to my sales team. What what answers do you get? I don't remember filling out that form. I've never heard of your company. I am not interested. You get ignored and you can't talk to them. Nobody that fills out these types of like lead form types of things that gets called by your sales team, convert. It's a super low rate and you need to hear it from yourself as a marketing team because it's just going right to your sales team. And no wonder there's misalignment on this thing, right? The title, it's very easy to get a CFO at a company to fill out your lead form. It's very hard to get that same CFO at that target company to want to buy your stuff. Your sales team cares about the people that want to buy, not just the people that have the right titles because they have Zoom info now. They could get that email address for way cheaper than you're going to get through LinkedIn ads. And so that's where it started for me in 2016 of like, I know that people are here. And at that point, it was mainly Facebook and Instagram ads for me, but LinkedIn ads would be the same. The same. And I tested that. My buyers are here because I'm, you know, doing the running these ads and they are converting on lead forms. They're engaging, they're commenting. But the action of trying to convert them and then have a sales action happen is clearly not working because I can feel it when I call my buyers. So I need to adjust my strategy and that's when I started to figure out aware like the difference between awareness and intent channels. And then I said, okay, what I actually need to do inside of paid social is focus on telling a story that educates my buyers. So that's step one on the mindset. Simple conversion from lead gen to demand gen. If your company's not on board with making that move, no sense in proceeding to step two or step three. And the easiest, like I mentioned, you can run a deep Salesforce data analysis, you can have the people that still want to run lead gen, you can tell, you can call the leads yourself and see how fucking bad they are. And then if people still want to do it, you could have your CRO call a couple of them. You could have some of the people that are up at the top that never that talk about how they know how to do cold calling and all that stuff and never actually do any of it. Like, shh. It's not a knock, but showing them what's actually happening because a lot of people just don't have an awareness to, to what it's like. Okay. Step two for marketers is metrics. The key is moving from metrics that you get inside of ad platforms to optimizing for metrics that you get inside of Salesforce or a CRM. That's the big difference in this piece. And so when you if you want to transition from lead gen to demand gen, you also need to change your metrics. You need different metrics for a completely different marketing or, or growth strategy. On the lead gen side, people are mainly optimizing for MQLs, leads, poor definition of pipeline, like meeting booked with an SDR or something like that, and cost per lead. Those are all the things that you when You hire, go and pay 4 a month for a LinkedIn ad agency to waste your money for lead gen. Like That's what metrics they're going to report back to you. They're not in your CRM. They're not reporting on any of that stuff. They're just collecting email addresses for you for $50 to $150 each. When you can move to a demand gen mindset, we need to look at the marketing results inside of Salesforce. Qualified pipeline that you win at more than 25% is the main metric that we're looking at. If that metric is growing, that's a great sign. That's a business metric that matters. We call that hero pipeline. We look at cost per SQO. So of those opportunities that win at greater than 25%, what's the blended cost that it costs us to get that? You can then benchmark that against what it's costing you in outbound with SDR headcount, it's associated sales tech and data. Revenue, marketing source revenue that comes through your website, customer acquisition cost. The transition here is moving from the channel to moving to the outcome, from moving from channel-based lead source, like Google ads or LinkedIn ads or things like that, to pipeline source, like our, th- they're coming through our website, they're submitting demos, they're converting, things like that. And you'll notice, I'm going to take a step back. It doesn't matter what CTA you have when you go back to the mindset point of you could put get a demo in there, you could put download this ebook, you could do, get, do this webinar, whatever CTA that you're doing to get someone to convert on those things. It doesn't matter. It's the fact that they don't have enough intent to complete those processes. So no matter if it's like, I talk about get a demo a lot and I think people misunderstand it. A get a demo conversion that I talk about is somebody that comes to your website on their own. I look at on their own because they're coming through organic search, direct traffic or branded paid search. They come to our website on their own and they convert on a demo, which means they have clear, high intent to buy, not direct response. We're going to drive a thousand people off of LinkedIn ads into our demo form and drive trash through our, through our funnel. So that's on the, the metric side. What are we actually optimizing for? We're optimizing to generate more pipeline through marketing. This will require people to look at it as a blended outcome. Not against a tr- software-based attribution against LinkedIn ads. So that's another big step that I talk about a ton. I have done both things as a marketer for a long time. And I'm just telling you the truth. It works way better when you look at it blended. You get way better results, way more scalability. The handcuffs created by attribution and B2B marketing really stunt creativity and make it really hard to do anything other than direct response lead gen. Okay, now we're getting into the meat because right now we've sort of talked through how we are going to change the mindset? What are we actually trying to do? How are we going to look at top level metrics to align the company about what is actually happening so that when the leads go down, right? When we stop doing direct response, $50 leads, and we start looking for high intent conversions that might cost $1,000 each blended, but the conversion rates are going to be 100X or better. So when the conversion rates get better, when leads start going down, We want to focus the company's attention, but look, marketing pipeline is going up. And that's so when you shift the focus, if people stop looking at the leads going down, it would give them so much more capability, so much more freedom. When you shift the focus to pipeline that wins at greater than 25%, not stage one pipeline, not meetings booked with SDRs, pipeline that your sales team wins at greater than 25% because all the shit that people do for LinkedIn ads never get that far. There's no way. So all the ebook stuff, all the get a demo, all the gift card giveaways, all that stuff that people do for DR on LinkedIn, never get deals that far. Or if they do, it's not enough of them. I don't know. One in... How many get to a sales qualified opportunity? Less than 2%. Not enough of them get there. And then from there, you win probably 0.1%. So you, have to, you get 500 leads to win one deal. You can do the customer acquisition costs in your on the back, like the back of a napkin, to see whether it makes sense for you. But the point is that it's really difficult to scale, and it's a huge waste of your sales team's time. So even if you can make the direct advertising customer acquisition cost work, where I like, okay, we get fifty dollars leads, we win one in five hundred, it's going to cost us twenty five grand in advertising to get a customer. We sell a thirty k CV software, and we're a high growth company. That's fine, but you're not looking at you need an SDR to follow up with 499 leads in order to get one that closes. How many sales processes does your AE work before they close one? How inefficient, how much more headcount are you going to need to scale when you win one out of 500 instead of one out of eight, right? So it's like, which funnel would you rather scale? I'd much rather scale an efficient funnel that actually works than a super low efficient one. Cool. So now getting into the execution part after we went on that little bit of a tangent, this will be the main piece of it. On the execution side, what you need to think about yourself as is the architect. If you are leading these programs as a director of demand or a VP of demand, you are the architect of the strategy. You are involved with psychology. You are involved with customer insights. You are involved with storytelling. You are involved with directing the creative. You are involved with orchestrating all of these things. So you need to know what do my buyers care about? What do they need to understand better in order to be open to trying our stuff? How am I going to be able to communicate those things in a way that they actually are receptive to? These are all things that you need to be thinking about when you move from collecting email addresses to telling stories. You need the customer insights. You need that type of thing because if you don't have the insights, you're just guessing about what these people want, which is what you get when you look at a lot of buyer persona maps. It's just people guessing what people want that map back to the features of their product what you need to go out is you need to go out and figure out what are these people not understand that's holding them back from being open to considering using our stuff if you have a product and i talk about this a ton if you have a product that solves a key pain point or opens up a new opportunity for people that's real you shouldn't need to trick people all you should need to do is make sure that you people know the opportunities and the nuances about why they should try these things and once they know them, it should be a black and white conversation. When, you, when it's a B2B sale, every B2B sale, I understand there's a motion to it, but you should be able to n- narrow it down to basically black and white ROI conversation through a lot of education. So you're, you're the architect. The first part is on the strategy. So thinking through whenever I'm doing a campaign and breaking these into campaigns, I'm thinking about what am I trying to accomplish? And so... F- I used to, now this kind of happens in real time, but I would encourage people and maybe I can drop a template or something because I have one. I would have a template that I would work out for every single campaign that I was doing that started with, who am I communicating with? What is the one takeaway that I want them to get out of this? What are the reasons that they would believe me? Like, and I worked through a little bit of a framework to talk through that because the point of a social campaign is to communicate one idea to people. People try and move someone from, I've never heard of your company before to now I'm in a demo with your sales team. And the key is by breaking it into small chunks. Like I want all of my total addressable market to know that we are the category leader. I want all of my strategic top 200 accounts to know that we just released the Salesforce integration. I want every single one of our free trial accounts that has the amount of employees that could fit on our enterprise plans to know about the top three or four enterprise customers that we have. So they have social proof. I want our free trial customers to know that we are enterprise ready. Like those are some of the things that you can think about, but breaking it down into a simple concept allows you to be strategic in act- how you actually tell the story. Right? So and then if you want people to know about the, that free trial customers that have signed up for free trial, that could be an enterprise plan, but aren't, then you could think about, okay, so I'm going to put together a campaign. I'm going to have four different videos, one with HubSpot, one with this manu- enterprise manufacturing company, one with Medtronic, one with these. I'm going to have four different enterprise stories, and I'm going to run them at scale to all of the companies that could be enterprise customers. And what I all I want people to know is that, hey, I know that our free you're on our free trial plan for $9 a month but here are these companies that have thousands of users in our tool and are having success. Those are a couple of different examples, but breaking it, like breaking it down into a really digestible amount of information has been such a secret weapon for me because it simplifies the story to one singular goal per campaign. Those will then start to drive the strategy. So once you work through who am I trying to communicate with, it'll start to drive how we target, how we message, what format of content we're gonna use, right? Carousel, video, images. And then inside of those, it could be animation, live action video, meme. There's a ton of different content formats they could actually put together. The actual placements, where do you want the ads to get served? The budget, the most appropriate channel, different things like that. One of the things on targeting that I've seen, I think people screw up is that when you're trying to storytell, when you're out of lead gen mode, you should be opening up the targeting wider than the decision maker of the product. I see so many companies miss by only going after the C-level executive that typically doesn't even care about your product, but has to sign off on it. And you need to open that up. So if you're going after the CFO, you need to open that up to the finance department. Because all of those people then Fuel Dark Social, which is where B2B buying actually happens. So I want to tell that story to any possible person that could potentially buy our product. I actually even target people that do not necessarily fit the company firmographics perfectly. Because who would have thought people change jobs all the time now. So just because there's a, there's a VP of revenue marketing at a 2,000 employee company, and you're like, oh, we can only sell the 10,000 plus employee accounts, I guess I'll never market to that person. And then next week, they become the CMO of a business unit inside of a 10,000 employee company, and you haven't been marketing to them at all. And they're looking to go and change the stack and make some things happen. And you haven't been marketing to them at all. And so I market to the people. I want them to know everything. Like So for us, I want every marketer to know what we're up to. When we launch products, I want every marketer to know all the value of them and how they're differentiated and all the things that they do. Not just the people that fit into this little box of C-level executive at these small different types of companies. People do that because of lead gen, right? If you were running lead gen, you obviously want to be deep in targeting because you don't want to send your salesperson a finance admin when they're trying to talk to a CFO. But when you're not in lead gen mode, you want all those people because once all those people see the enterprise use cases, the companies that are using it, engage in the videos, what do they do? They bring it up in team meetings. They talk to coworkers. They share screenshots of ads inside of Slack. They share content inside of Slack. They ask about it in communities. They post about it in social media. It starts, the story starts the dark social buying process. So that's one thing on the, the wide targeting. Let me see if I can, I'm going to try and pull up a screen share right here. Just give me a second. I'm going to start working through, now we have like kind of targeting and some other details in there. I'm going to start getting into like the launch and the optimization. Cause I think that's actually a place where when you adopt this strategy and you don't have direct attribution, direct cost per lead numbers, different things like that, you have to have a whole different way of optimizing and thinking about what you're trying to accomplish with the ads, right? The goals are different. So we need to optimize differently. So I'm going to bring this up for people to see. So you can see here, we have we got custom conversions. I'm just showing you an example. This is in LinkedIn ads, but you can do a similar thing in Facebook. Honestly, iOS 14 is making it diff. Actually, it basically went away inside of Facebook Ads Manager, although we're getting signals of it coming back. So, as of the past like 30 days, we've been getting more signals from Facebook Ads Manager with setting up custom conversions this exact way. What you're doing here is that you're mapping your high value conversion into LinkedIn to see that people that are seeing or clicking on the ads within a 30 day attribution window are actually going and seeing the ads and then converting on them what you want them to do. And the reason that we set it up this way is because it doesn't have to be direct response. I actually don't want anyone to click and direct response convert because the intent is so low, the conversion rates go way down. They don't have enough intent to complete an enterprise buying process and it's not gonna scale. So I don't want people to click and convert. I want people to learn. Another thing this leads me to is a little bit of a tangent. Is that from the strategy standpoint, when you're in storytelling mode, you need to, you need to get out of the, the mindset of that clicks are the most important thing On LinkedIn ads, an average of point will ha- the campaign will have an average of .4 percent click-through rate. That means that 99.6 percent of people don't click. Which one would you rather optimize for? I optimize for the 99.6 percent that never click, which also includes the. 0.4% the click. So I'm not trying to get everyone onto the landing page. The landing page is extra. It's nice if people get there, we can retarget off of it. Great. But I need to tell the story in the feed where most people will consume the information, whether that's thinking about messaging of a static image, just like if you were having a, you you know, whatever people put these billboards in San Francisco on one specific like highway where all the tech people drive into the office. Like, why don't you think about LinkedIn that way? Every single day, you could have a different billboard that you could market to your exact target customer, and you get way better targeting than a billboard. <laughs> you get way better targeting. For a billboard, you just get whoever's driving down the road. On LinkedIn, you choose exactly who sees it. Same thing with video, right? You could like think about having a television commercial to all of your buyers every single day with a LinkedIn ad, which has way better targeting than any, any possible television option. Connected TV, it doesn't matter. And so that's the mindset that people could get into. So I want people to, I don't necessarily care if people are clicking off. What I care about is, is the message being consumed, aka, am I hitting the goal for the campaign, which is that more people in my target audience and my ICP know this information. And when they know this information, they're going to be a lot more likely to consider using our product or to go and ask colleagues or friends or different things in dark social social. Okay, hey, Chris. The, yep. Is there a reason why the value of the conversion is set to zero dollars? So I'll go, I'm going to work through this for people. Okay. Sounds good. Yep. So tangent over moving back into the custom conversions. This is an example of the setup. The reason that I put zero for the set the value of the conversion is because it is zero until it becomes revenue. So what I see a lot of people do is they take an ebook download and they tri- attribute the value of a thousand dollars to an ebook download, assuming some level of conversion rates, they never check Salesforce. And so inside of LinkedIn ads, they're like, wow, we're super positive right now. Everything's working. Zero revenue has been generated, but the the platform says that there's been a ton because they assign a conversion value. All of the business level analytics happen in Salesforce, not in LinkedIn ads. That's why I put zero. I just think it's an unnecessary part. Everything should be connected back. And additionally, we're... We're looking at this blended, not inside of one campaign. So I'll keep talking talking through the details. So we're trying to get a demo submit, which is the thank you page after the demo. No matter what somebody does, LinkedIn has good data for cross device, wherever people are logged into LinkedIn, right? Your phone, your work computer, your personal computer. So LinkedIn has really good data, which is th- probably why the conversion tracking is still working when Facebook is not, that people could see the ad, and then leave and then talk to their coworkers about it. And then seven days later, go back to Google and search your brand and click on the first organic link of your brand, and then go out of your homepage and submit a demo. And this would attribute it. That's why we set these up so that you can do cross device and non-direct response conversions. Is it going to catch everything? No way. If that same exact thing, that person left, they saw the ad, they took a screenshot of it. They left. They shared it in their company Slack channel, the manager at that company then went on because they're the person that's actually going to go explore it, and then they go and convert in the demo, you wouldn't get that attribution. So this is like minimum level signals when there's so much more value being created. People that are converting that aren't exactly in the audience, that's one. one. All of the, the messaging and brand impact, which is the main goal of the campaign, is also not accounted for in these. So the point is that there's tons of value being delivered from these ads that are not being quantified by just this tracking. But these ads should be able to defend themselves against an acceptable CAC payback in your business just on the attributable conversions. We use 30-day view and 30-day click. I know some people use 90, especially with last touch. It gets pretty messy because you're going to have a lot of different campaigns running and just the last touch is going to take credit for most of it. I personally use Last Touch because we use a lot of different campaigns. And if you don't use use each campaign, then you get five. One demo can count across five individual campaigns, which artificially inflates your numbers and makes it look way better than you're actually doing. So the way that it's set up on Last Campaign, one demo equals one LinkedIn conversion, as opposed to if you use each campaign, then if you had separate campaigns for the same audience, then one demo conversion could mean multiple conversions, and it would throw your cost basis out out of whack. Okay, now we move into the campaign groups, what I'm showing you here is that now that these are actually set up, you can see the same exact demo, submit custom conversion that I built here, we can actually look at these conversions over a period of time and then attribute the cost per conversion, and then look at whether a majority of the conversions came from clicks, or from views. When there are clicks, it doesn't mean that it was direct response necessarily. If it was direct response, you would see that in your CRM or market animation because it would be directly attributed with UTMs to the channel. But a click conversion could be somebody saw the ad, clicked on it, read the landing page, left, came back seven days later on a desktop computer, searched your brand and converted. That would also account as a click conversion. So you you got all this data, which then starts to show you the signals of... Are my ads actually working? Are the people that are seeing these, which are cold, non-retargeting audiences, that means that people that haven't been on our website in the past, whatever, 90 days or whatever you use for a retargeting audience, they haven't been on the website in the last 90 days, but now we're giving them ads and they're converting on demos, which means that we are creating demand, which is the way that you actually get growth out of this out of marketing is by creating demand, not focusing all on capturing it. And then you get this really interesting estimate, which is a, the, like I mentioned, sort of like a quote unquote, worst case value of a cost per demo conversion blended across your entire campaign, which right for this one is like, I don't know, when you convert Canada to US, I'm guessing it's like $1,200. This company wins 12% of their demos, which means they win one out of eight, which means at $1,200, they're paying about $10,000 in advertising to win a 45k ACB customer which means that their advertising customer acquisition cost payback period is less than 3 months, which every single high growth company, series C, D, E company would gladly take. It looks higher than your cost per lead, right? Most people that are running LinkedIn ads are used to seeing somewhere between a 50 and a $500 CPL on a lead gen form. But I just communicated customer acquisition cost, like projected out customer acquisition cost, which is significantly better than CPL, right? So this is again back to the There's a lot of things that need to get shifted in the mind. And one of them is moving from the top of funnel lead metric to the bottom funnel conversion and customer acquisition cost. So we get this cost per conversion, everything that's coming through our demo form. We have this, like, I call it a pipe, a pipe of buyers that come through our website, ask for a demo, go through, and we win 12% of those raw leads, which means our salespeople need to talk to eight people to win a deal for 45K to really solid conversion rates. Almost no companies get to that level. And then once you have that, if you keep running the machine the same, we keep running the machine the same, which means we're gonna increase the targeting, we're gonna improve the creative, we're gonna keep telling better stories, we're gonna keep working at it, then when more people come in, so when you go from 100 demos to 150 to 200, you still win 12% of them which means that as you go, you can rebuild the entire demand forecast based on the demo conversion with super good conversion rates. And as long as you're not doing direct response or introducing garbage lead channels, then the conversion rates should stay similar or get better. And that's, that's how you can rebuild and show a company how you move and how we move companies. I just finished I'm not going to share the screen, but I can communicate on it. Let's do that next. I just finished up an analysis with a company last night, series D company that has been with us for two years. Yeah, I just want to talk through the impact of when we did this. So from the first quarter that we worked together, which is Q1 of 2020, uh, right around when COVID happened, to the fourth quarter of 2021, website sales velocity increased by 1,653%. Website sales velocity is pipeline velocity, which combines ACV, pipeline generated, sales cycle lengths, and SQL win rate. ACV went up by 43%. Sales cycle length dropped by 41%. So we almost cut sales cycle lengths in half. We almost doubled ACVs. Pipeline grew by 487%. And SQO win rate doubled from 23% to 46%. And when you put all of those metrics combined, the velocity, the speed, and the, the flow of the amount of pipeline coming through grew from like, Two hundred thousand per quarter to four million, and so those are these are the possible impacts. That's a two-year period of time, right? So you need to think about there was progressive growth along the way, but there's there's major upside to doing this, which is impossible to get if you get stuck running direct lead gen. This is why marketing programs don't scale. It's purely because they only think about it in lead gen. When you think about it as telling stories to the market, so that people know more, so that people want to buy. That's how you get the scalability. And so we talked through custom conversions is one of them that should give you really good insights as to which campaigns, which ads to optimize. You're going to be able to see the signals. People that see these ads are converting. It's within our cost per conversion. Like you should be able to start to see those, which is the indicator of like, Hey, we're it's the positive signal I talk about within scale. We're putting stuff out and we're getting positive signals back that people that are seeing these ads are eventually converting within 30 days. The next thing that you can use is self-reported attribution. We install this with companies. So the, how did you hear about us on your forum? Free text required. You put this on your forum, like within 30 days, you'll get people saying, I heard about you from LinkedIn. They're not going to say LinkedIn ads, but most companies don't have a real deep LinkedIn strategy anyway. So you could assume that it's coming from LinkedIn ads. And then another piece is sort of a tangent, but on the, on the content and the creative side, We need to stop thinking about A-B testing everything and comparing one piece of content against another. And what we need to start thinking about is each specific content piece or campaign has a specific goal. The goal of one piece of content might be to educate someone on a very deep topic that's not wide. It's going to get less engagement for that reason, right? Some of the videos that I post that are like deep details about capturing demand or something like that will get only 300 likes because it's not relevant to everybody. It's very deep and technical. And then I'll post something else that's like, marketing is not magic and it'll get 2000 likes and it'll get more likes because it's broad, wide and easier to understand for more people. It doesn't mean that one's better than the other. They both had separate goals. So trying to help people see like, I see a mistake when people get inside a paid social and they see, oh, like, because our case studies have a 0.3% better click-through rate we might as well stop doing everything else and we'll just keep running these case studies that have better click-through rates. There's not enough details inside of the ad platform to make those types of decisions. You should set the goal. You should make the best piece of content that you can to accomplish that goal. You should run it. You should collect the data. You should learn from it. But comparing them one against the other and making decisions off of that, I think that you should start from scratch every time and say, what is the goal? How am I going to communicate that? How am I going to tell that story? Let's go build it. Let's run it. Let's learn. Let's recycle the process. And I think that to close out, and then maybe we'll have time for two or three tactical questions. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened in B2B marketing so far. Not just LinkedIn ads, but across the board that B2B marketers that eight years ago could not access their target customers or prospective buyers on their own directly. They had to build trade show booths. They had to buy lists. They had to sponsor webinars or email campaigns from third parties. They had to get email addresses so their sales team could do it. The the marketer never touched, never had the capability to go directly to the customer. All those walls have gotten broken down. You can go directly to your customer now using these channels to exactly who you want down to the exact company, down to the exact job title, down to the revenue range, technographics, whatever, And marketing can go direct to the consumer. Just like how companies, B2C companies, used to need to be in Walmart in 1990, the distribution channel of Walmart was critical. If you were trying to build a company and you didn't have distribution, you couldn't win. And now look right now at all of the e commerce companies that are winning, that are never in Whole Foods, that are never in Walmart. They don't even have a retail strategy. They're not going to give away 40% margin for a retailer to sell something when they could sell it direct to the consumer themselves and you can grow way faster. It's the exact same concept in B2B where the distribution channels are the gatekeepers, the conferences, the sales team, things like that. Um, This is not combative against the sales team. It's just empowering to the marketing team that you can go over the top, communicate this with your customers, make an impact, Deliver high quality, super high intent leads that your sales team wins one out of eight, one out of 10, one out of 12, super high efficient. Also creates all this education so that when your sales team is doing enterprise outbound ABM, all these people already know the things that they need to know so that your outbound becomes more effective. When people you start making outbound calls, people aren't saying, uh, who are you again? I've never heard of you. Hang up and they say, Oh, I've been listening, you know, I've been seeing your stuff around. I'm familiar with you. I'd love to learn more big changes in effectiveness of outbound when you run this model for years. So yeah, this is, I believe it's the, one of the most meaningful, impactful changes in the landscape of B2B marketing. And I hope that all of you can take advantage of it. I hope this was helpful. Let's get into some questions. Okay, uh, let's get Kathy on here. She had a question.
0: Chris, um, I have a question about measurement. I'm going to start measuring marketing influence SQOs the way you just said, and I want to start doing it today. So do you recommend that I start passing a custom property in terms of uh, the opportunity source, or do you just pass original source from from HubSpot, original lead source into the opportunity. I know it's super in the weeds, but I just want yeah, to know how to measure it. No, it's
1: great. It's going to help a lot of people. And the point was this for to be tactical. So I separate these two things from thinking about channel attribution to pipeline source. This is something that most people don't do. And so when I like the only thing that I care about that I'm looking for is when the pipeline source is website. When a buyer comes in and says, "I want to buy now." Right, So I'm agnostic to how they get there because I know that dark social is happening. Most of the stuff isn't being tracked. And so the easiest way for, in my view to measure marketing, to defend ROI, to build business cases, to get more budget, to know whether your stuff is really working, it's just a way simpler, easy, easier way to measure marketing is how much pipeline and revenue gets generated through our website against how much money we spend on marketing. So it's a blended look, right? And once you blend it, then it's a marketer's job to use the measurement and attribution to guide strategy. So there's a big shift in how how I use attribution versus everyone else. Everyone else is using attribution to prove ROI, to tag a click on an email so they can get influenced revenue on that pipeline or different things like that. And I'm using attribution solely, software, custom conversions, qualitative market research, self-reported attribution, all these things to understand what's really working for my buyer and how do I optimize my marketing mix to make it work better. And so I think that that's, that's the way that I would recommend. And so it becomes very simple. If people come to your website and say, hey, I want to buy now, and then con- then all you have to do is tag it as website, or we call it a pipe conversion, it gets tagged, it should convert into a stage one opportunity within seven days. So you should be able to carry the lead forward. For some companies, we literally, because the conversion rates are so good, when the person submits the form, they book a calendar link with a rep, we create the opportunity automatically. So there's like different ways that you can do it in the mechanics. Like we create an opportunity automatically because 9% of people that fill out our request a consultation form become a customer, which is better conversion rate than most companies stage one opportunity, right? So we create the opportunity automatically and we bypass all of the SDR follow-up. It also makes tracking and attribution way more simple. Thank you. Happy to help. Okay, Mikhail, you're next.
0: Hi, Chris. Hi, everyone. I have a question uh, about a business model where a uh, B2B company sells mostly through distributors. Like, it's, it's not uncommon.
1: No, this um, is uh, on my My first five yeah. years of my career, I spent with companies that sell, through, sell hardware through distribution.
0: Yeah. So, you know, uh, most of the discussions are about SaaS, where you, you can actually see everything, right? Uh, uh, deals the status of the deal, the size of the deal, Mm -hmm. the outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, There are still a lot of companies that uh, basically you could do marketing and customers can convert somewhere. They can buy, you don't even know about this. Mm
1: -hmm. You can only
0: see the revenue coming to you from distributors that are basically order takers. Yep uh, but uh, <laughs> there's not much you can do about it. So we still like have a sales team, you know, our sales team talk to
1: yeah, they manage some of distributors and yeah.
0: users. We still work with the end users. We call them end users.
1: So you do direct um, direct sales and distribution at the same time.
0: Uh, like maybe 3% direct sales. Okay. So almost, do you have not channel three.
1: conflict even at the 3%? Is that why you ha- why it's not higher than 3%?
0: So most of these larger companies, they have exclusive contracts, these distributors, and Mm -hmm. uh, there's just no way we can sell to them directly, even if we wanted to. Uh, This is just a situation we can't change. And so uh, we can work with these uh, inbound leads. They have high intent. Sometimes like uh, we have friendly relationships, so they will tell us, the, the the scale of the deal, you know how, how much they buy, mm-hmm. but sometimes they just uh, go uh, silent after they completed this task, this job. Yep. They move to the next task, and we don't even know. Sometimes we accidentally know about. Hey, they we actually been buying since like two years ago when you we guys talked. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, we, know this, uh, I know
1: this. I know the situation very very well. So how can I help?
0: Any, any advice, like, <laughs>
1: um,
0: uh, what, what do you do? Yeah.
1: So just for the listeners to catch people up. So there's a company, the company, let's just say that they're selling uh, cameras actually let me get something B2B. They're selling uh, office equipment. But because of some element, like the installation or the implementation or something like that, instead of them actually delivering all this stuff, they use a third-party local company that they call a distributor So the company that's the manufacturer sells to the distributor and the distributor sells to them, which was, it was just like being in Walmart in 1990. That was the way that you needed to go to market because there was no way for companies to build the infrastructure to reach those consumers. But it's now 2020, right? And the the reason that distributors have become order takers is because of the phenomena of how people buy in the internet. So distributors are no longer incentivized to go out and actually pound the pavement and sell your product. They just sit back and wait and they take 30, 40, 50% of your margin to do nothing and sit in the middle. Exactly. Um, and so, and when this happens, right, you can generate demand. The distributor gets some sales, but you can't connect it back. You're not like integrated with their sales force to connect back. Who are they selling to and where did they come from? What you can do is you can generate like they're not generating demand. So you'd have to generate demand. People would come through your website. You'd pass them to them. But even then, once you pass it to them, you don't have any insight into where they're sitting in the funnel or anything like that. So it becomes very difficult to optimize. The strategic decision here that I would do is you got to figure out how to get out of distribution. Companies get stuck here and get killed. Com- companies will get destroyed. Car dealerships, other companies that get forced through distribution. Are going to get crushed when car companies go direct to the consumer. Tesla's already doing it. There's one that's being a different electric car company underneath my building that's going direct to the consumer with a showroom. There's people that are in these distributor seats, and the companies that win are going to have to figure out how to go around them or to go over the top of them, skip that, which would create way different margin pressure so they could charge less, just like how companies that don't sell through Nordstrom sell the same exact clothes for way less, and they win e-commerce, so this is a strategic decision. I would uh I would put together a plan of how to not need my distributors anymore, and that's what I would do when it comes to marketing. I, you you just have to look at total volume of sales. But as a marketer, I would no longer market to companies that don't have a direct sales channel. Yeah,
0: makes sense. I just wouldn't do it. Yeah. The, the problem is that. These companies like, so we're talking about like Tesla, Boeing, it's not like local distributors. They buy from large national distributors. It's not some local small companies that we could just.
1: I under, I, I get it. Um, yeah. It doesn't change the fact that they sit in the middle and they don't add enough value. You call them order takers anyway. So it's like, regardless of how big the company is, how hard it would be to change, like how long their exclusive contracts are. It doesn't matter about all those things. What is the clear obvious thing is that that company sits in the middle and does not provide enough value to the consumer. And when that happens, the people that sit in the middle and don't provide enough value to the consumer get squeezed out. So eventually somebody will innovate that bypasses the channel. I'd recommend that it be the company's I'd recommend that it be your company, but somebody eventually will and they'll win. Um, I did this. We, um, in 2016, I didn't lead this, but the company I worked for did it. We had a national distributor for our medical devices. That company took 25 or 30% gross margin in order to keep, you know, the company was operating at like very low gross margins. Like we weren't even, we had all the fixed costs, we weren't even making any money. And We had to cut out. We eventually had to cut out the distributor. We had eight reps that were managing, eight regional reps that were managing this one major distributor who sat in the middle. Our sales reps still had to sell deals. Our clinical specialists still had to go in and implement. It was a company that literally provided distribution, took a huge margin, and did nothing. And we had to cut them out. And was it super painful? It hurt a lot. It was expensive in the short term. We had to go and hire reps, we had to train them. It hurt overall company margin for a while. But what happened after that? We had direct sales. We had entire control over the customer experience. We made way more margin. The company was able to raise way more money and they IPO'd and were way more successful. And they would have never IPO'd with a distribution channel. So those are like, that company was $30 million. I imagine the company that you're talking about is much larger and will be harder to change. But the revenue value doesn't change the fact that it doesn't match what the consumer needs anymore. So I acknowledge that wasn't super helpful, but that's just like my unfiltered thoughts on the subject. Thanks. Tatiana, you're up.
0: Hi, good afternoon. So this is a question principle. It's not something I'm personally grappling with, but it's something that I've noticed a lot on LinkedIn. So a lot of large, very, very large B2B companies, especially in banking, industrial, defense, and manufacturing, they will split up their social efforts by legal entity. So they'll have like sometimes tens of different accounts. Sometimes, And there's a couple of exceptions. HSBC is one of them. They've got one page with about 3 million followers. And then they'll have groups for, for their local entities. So there's mm-hmm. they call it HSBC India as a group. Yep. Does this dilute the message? Is this good or bad? I'd just like to know what your thoughts are. I'm not personally grappling with this. It's just something I'm noticed.
1: Yeah, big companies do that when there are I, I think there's advantages to this when there are specifics to what you're trying to do. So if there's like a big holdings company and then there's 10 different products, right? So like Medtronic would have a page, but then all the companies and brands that they own are also going to have their individual pages. And then even under some of the brands, they might have a US page, a France page, a Germany page, because the languages then become different, right? So when there is a significant segmentation that you need to make in order to do it, I can understand the rationale as you will, as to why you would do it, especially as a large company. But what happens is that you spread out your effort and energy, and then you end up having a small amount of followers and a bunch of pages rather than one big set of followers. Um, It also creates a lot of operational complexities about like having to localize, having to make sure the messaging is consistent and things like that. But those are some of the cons, but on the pros, it creates autonomy for the local team in France to market in a way that's localized to France. And so I understand why companies do it. It's probably only very large publicly traded holdings or global holdings companies that do this. I understand why. Um, I don't, Necessarily think that there's a right or wrong answer here. I think that there's pros and cons to do, to each of each of them.
0: Yeah. Thanks for that. Cheers.
1: Cheers. Great to have you here. All right, everyone. This has been an awesome, uh, awesome time with you all. I hope everyone had one thing. Maybe if you drop in the chat, one thing you took away or one thing that you're going to try um, leaving here. I'd love to see what people's main takeaways were, so we can continue to sort of like optimize. So why don't people drop in there for one second, and then we'll. See what people are doing, or everyone just leaving, we'll see. Alright, look. Okay.